Well, this morning, uh, my goal is to help prepare all of our hearts for Thanksgiving. And to do so, I want to show you an intriguing account from the life of our Lord uh, that illustrates uh, the condition of the human heart, which is often, unfortunately, thankless, but also gives us a wonderful portrait of what heartfelt, genuine, worshipful thanks looks like. Please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 17, verse 11. The account I want to show you is an actual account from the life of Jesus. He performs a miracle that demonstrates His power over disease. Uh, But even though this is a historical account, I want to preach it as a parable that illustrates human nature and the thankful faith we should aim for. Now, it may be a bit of a stretch, but I think I actually might have some warrant for doing so, and I say that because of this. Uh, A parable, the, the whole idea of a parable is of a teacher taking some physical, the, uh, physical reality that is easy for people to understand and relate to, and setting that alongside of a spiritual reality that people don't tend to understand or, or, or realize. And uh, Jesus taught in parables, and often when He taught in parables, uh, He told a fictional story about daily life that was relatable to the audience, and then He made a point through that about spiritual reality. But there was one parable when Jesus used a miracle and a historical event uh, to teach a parable. Uh, If you remember, it was the parable when Jesus cursed the fig tree uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, He cursed this fig tree because it was in leaf at the time of year when fig trees bore fruit, but this particular fig tree bore no fruit. And uh, the whole point of the parable is that from a distance, Israel, in his generation, looked like a very religious people. They went to the temple, they offered sacrifices, uh, they went to the synagogue, and yet they didn't bear the fruit of righteous living that God was looking for. And so, in that instance, Jesus used a real fig tree as a prop to demonstrate God's view of the generation of Israel uh, that He ministered to, and also God's judgment on all who don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in the same way, I'd like to take this historical account Uh, from the life of Christ, but use it as a parable to demonstrate the prevalence of thanklessness and the thankful faith we want to aim for as Christians. So, let's read the text together, starting in uh, Luke 17, verse 11. While Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As He entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met Him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When He saw them, He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to Him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we pause now to focus on the truth that you've revealed in this passage, please come and meet us in the middle of our need. I'm sure I can't even begin to think of all the needs that were brought into this room this morning, but you, Father, know all things. Every hair on every head of every person here is numbered. Every thought in the deepest recess of every heart is known by you. And so I plead with you to minister to every need miraculously in ways I never could have anticipated when I put down on paper these ideas I wanted to share. 
please come and make your word convicting. Make your word healing. Make your word restoring. Make your word saving. Into your hands I commit this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin by just walking us through this historical account so that we understand it better, and then we'll look at the powerful lessons that it teaches. And I'm choosing to attempt to unfold it like a four-act play. The first act shows the goodness of Jesus. In verse 11, Luke tells us that this event happened while Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. And it's important to note that this was not any ordinary trip to Jerusalem. This was a very special, important trip to Jerusalem. And there's a whole story, a whole backstory behind the trip. Only a couple months earlier, Jesus had been ministering on the east side of the Jordan River in Perea, and word reached Him that His good friend Lazarus was sick. And John records these remarkable words, "'Now Jesus loved Lazarus, so when He heard that He was sick, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was.'" That that seems kind of counterintuitive. Brooke and the kids broke down in West Virginia, and Chris loved them so much, he waited two days before he went in. What's going on there? Well, actually, this was legitimately done out of love because Jesus had an agenda, right? At first glance, that may not sound like a loving thing, but here's what was going on. Jesus was contriving to arrive on the fourth day after Lazarus had died, and there were two really important reasons for that. First of all, To this day, Orthodox Jews believe that after a person dies, their spirit hovers over the body for three days and then departs. So by the fourth day, if you will, they're good and dead. And you'll remember that Israel is a hot climate, and so the Jews had a rule in their community uh, that by the end of the third day, a body had to either be sealed in a tomb or buried because it was starting to smell. And and so based on that reality, on that timing, when someone died then, you knew when the graveside service would, would be because of the way the community functioned. There were no questions about, about when it would be. And so, based on that reality, the Jews had created a cycle of mourning. They actually had a prescribed cycle of how you grieve the loss of a loved one, and the cycle had three elements. There was uh, the first week, and then the first month, and the first year. And the high day of that grieving process was the fourth day of the first week, which meant this. If you had a friend who lost a family member, and, and for, because of distance or some other thing going on, if you had a friend who lost a loved one, and you could only be with them one day to give your condolences and give them a hug and comfort them, you would go and be with them the fourth day. You would, you would go and be with them uh, after the person was buried. And so, by arriving on the fourth day, Jesus knew that everybody would be with Mary and Martha, the the sisters of Lazarus. He knew that everybody would be there at the tomb, and He knew that everyone who was there would understand that Lazarus was good and dead. He wasn't just in some kind of coma. And so, Jesus contrived by His timing to make His arrival a very public spectacle, and what He's going to do is this. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he's going to do it in front of a whole village that's assembled to comfort Mary and Martha on the fourth day. And this is what John tells us about that event. Uh, Because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, quote, therefore many of the Jews who had come to Mary, Lazarus's sister, and saw what Jesus had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. 
Uh, the response of the Pharisees was sheer panic. They were afraid they were going to lose their position in society, and so uh, they planned from that moment on to actually work together. They make the commitment to each other that they're going to work together to kill Jesus. Now, earlier in the gospel accounts, many of them had wanted to kill Jesus, but there's a change that comes there in John chapter 11. They actually make the commitment to each other that they will work together and cooperate to kill Jesus. And John tells us that because of that, therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there He stayed with the disciples. So, after raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus becomes a fugitive. The most powerful men in Jerusalem want Him dead. And what's amazing is that even though He's a fugitive, He's going to orchestrate events in such a way that a couple of months later, He's going to walk into Jerusalem for the Passover, and not only is He going to enter Jerusalem and not be arrested by the authorities, He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey with tens of thousands of people hailing Him as Israel's Messiah. Uh, that's what Jesus is going to do here. And so, this trip that Luke is mentioning, this is His final trip up to Jerusalem. This is the final trip Jesus is making before He offers Himself. And even though this uh, village called Ephraim was only 13 miles north of Jerusalem, it would have been an easy walk along the ridgeline there, uh, south, 13 miles to get to Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, when it come comes time to travel up to Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus goes the opposite direction. He heads north, back up into Galilee, because He wants to meet with other Galilean pilgrims who are caravanning down to, up to Israel for, uh, for the Passover. And uh, the way that the Jews would do this is they would travel around Samaria. They would take this longer route down into the Jordan, uh, across the Jordan, into the Jordan Rift Valley, and then come up uh, to Jerusalem because they wanted to avoid uh, Samaritan soil. And uh, they would travel in caravans because there was safety in numbers. Uh, and as they travel up to the Passover, Jesus starts doing some very messianic things. He heals a lot of people, including these ten lepers very early in the trip. And uh, so this is happening, happening early in our Lord's final journey to Jerusalem. And it was very early in this journey when He was traveling on the borderland uh, between Samaria and Galilee that as He entered a village, ten leprous men met Him from a distance. Uh, by God's grace, leprosy is not a problem in our culture. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but so we need to talk for a little bit about uh, what leprosy was like. Dr. Alan Gillen writes this description of leprosy. Many have thought leprosy to be a disease of the skin. It is better classified, however, as a disease of the nervous system because the leprosy bacterium attacks the nerves. Leprosy is spread by multiple skin contacts as well as by droplets from the upper respiratory tracts. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones, twisting of the limbs, and curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. Facial changes include thickening of the outer ear and collapsing of the nose. Tumor-like growths called lepromas may form on the skin and in the respiratory tract, and the optic nerve often deteriorates. However, the largest amount of deformities develop from loss of pain sensation due to extensive nerve damage. For example, inattentive patients can pick up a cup of boiling water 
without flinching. The leprosy, uh, bacillus, destroys nerve endings that carry pain signals. Therefore, patients with advanced leprosy experience a total loss of physical pain. When these people cannot sense or touch, uh, when these people cannot sense touch or pain, they tend to injure themselves or to be unaware of injury caused by something else. The modern medical name for leprosy is Hansen's disease. It's still with us in some parts of the world today. There's a milder form of the disease that doesn't cover the entire body and often clears up in one to three years, uh, but the more, most virulent form of the disease, it covers the whole body and then kills you within 10 to 20 years. It's no surprise then that because of this dreaded contagious disease that in the Mosaic law, God prescribed that lepers uh, be quarantined to stop the spread of the disease. Uh, Leviticus 13 says it this way, "'As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp.'" By the time of Christ, uh, the rabbis required that lepers uh, stay 50 paces away from anybody who was healthy. And the Jewish historian Josephus explained to his Roman readers that to the Jews, lepers were as if they were, in effect, dead men, no different than a corpse. Leprosy was considered the worst of diseases. In addition to losing your health, you lost everything else, your family, your friends, the comforts of home, your community, your work, your pursuits. It was an extremely isolating disease, and that's the condition these men were in. They were miserable, hopeless, sick men who were isolated, living on the fringes of society, and they call out to Jesus, verse 13, Master, have mercy on us. No doubt they had heard about the miraculous power Jesus had to heal. Maybe they had even heard about earlier uh, lepers that He had healed earlier in His ministry, and so they begged Jesus to heal them. Verse 14 <clears throat> excuse me, when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. Uh, most of us, when we read this story, knowing what we know of Jesus, we would expect that in his goodness, he would heal these men, right? But, but the question is, how would you picture it? I would tend to picture it that maybe even though they were unclean, He would approach them and touch them and, and use His healing touch to heal them. But that's not what He does in this case. He does something different, and He does something very interesting. Uh, remember that at this time, everybody, these lepers, Jesus, His disciples, they're all still living under the Mosaic Covenant, right? The new covenant in Christ's blood hasn't been ushered in through Christ's sacrifice, so they're still living under the old covenant. And the old covenant had a way for a leper who, whose leprosy had cleared up, it had a way for them to be uh, reinstated into society. If you were a leper and your leprosy had cleared up, you were to go and show yourself to one of the local priests. In the law, the priests were given a jurisdiction that's similar to that of a health inspector. So, you would go to a priest 
for a wellness checkup from your leprosy, and they would give you a written certificate uh, um, with their name on it, their authority. They would give you a written certificate declaring that your leprosy had uh, been healed, and then you were supposed to immediately take that written certificate and go to Jerusalem, show yourself to the priest in Jerusalem, and then with their permission, you gave some prescribed sacrifices in the temple. And those sacrifices uh, were to show that uh, uh, they were to express gratitude to God for healing you. And once that wellness checkup and those sacrifices were offered, only then were you reinstated into society and reunited with your family. And so, what Jesus is doing here is He's telling these men to initiate that process of confirming their healing, but He's telling them to do it before they were healed. Now, I think it's a test of faith that He's doing. He's testing their faith. And verse 18 ends by saying, and as they were going, they were cleansed. So, at the command of Jesus, their terrible disease was healed. The bacteria that caused leprosy was gone. Their skin was healed. Their disfigurements were restored. Their tumor-like growths were gone. Their nerves were completely made whole. And so, what you have then is Jesus simultaneously healing ten lepers from a distance with an intentional delay in time, and it shows off His power over disease and time and space and matter, but it also shows off His great compassion for human suffering. They confessed their physical need to Christ, and He healed them. Uh, It's a demonstration of the power and goodness of Jesus. Which brings us to the second act in our drama, and that is uh, heartfelt thanks. Look again at verses 15 and 16. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Now, up to this point in the story, all ten lepers are virtually indistinguishable. They're the same, right? Uh, Perhaps they've stuck together because they've all been ostracized from the community, and they're not going to get each other sick because they're already sick. Uh, But they all uh, look to Jesus in hope that He'll heal them. Uh, They all consider Him a a master, a teacher, a rabbi. Uh, They all obeyed His command to go and show themselves to the priest. Uh, They all were healed. But now one of them stands out from the rest of the pack because he turns back to return thanks to Jesus. And he does three things in the way he gives thanks that show us uh, a a heart of um, thankfulness and thankful faith. First of all, this man was glorifying God with a loud voice. In other words, uh, he was saying out loud for all to hear what God had done for him. He wanted everybody to know God's goodness to him in this matter. Second, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. That's a powerful gesture acknowledging the identity of Jesus. Uh, In the Old Testament, people most often fall on their faces when they encounter a visible manifestation of God, and it clarifies what this man was thinking. And then also, Luke portrays the way that this man gave thanks with a very special word. He uses the Greek word eucharisteo, which in the New Testament is the word for the worship of God. Uh, So, this man's posture and the manner of the way he's giving thanks, it shows that he is worshiping Jesus. He's giving Jesus the worship that is only due to God. And then Luke adds this shocker, and this one was a Samaritan. Now, many of you know that the Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get along, uh, right? And Jews like to look down on the Samaritans. But Jesus was happy to heal 
and saved Samaritans. If you remember, the very first person that he shared, uh, the very first person he revealed his messianic identity to was the Samaritan woman at the well. Though Jesus understood his primary ministry to be to the house of Israel, and he says that on more than one occasion, that's his main ministry, even though that was his main ministry, he did make time uh, to heal and to save Samaritans and other Gentiles. But on the heels of this heartfelt faith and thanks from the Samaritan, this worship uh, from the Samaritan, we find sadness in the heart of our Lord. And that sadness points to the bitter reality of thankfulness that we have to reckon with. Uh, Jesus was grieved over the response of the other nine. Uh, Look at verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Uh, The Greek order, uh, word order reads this way, but the nine, they are where? The nine should have been doing what this Samaritan was doing. In verse 18, Jesus continues, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? The grief in the heart of our Lord here is not self-serving. He's grieved that the other nine aren't giving the proper glory to God they should give. And he's grieved also, I believe, about what this says about the Jewish people who no doubt comprised the majority of the other nine lepers were, were probably predominantly Jewish. Uh, Earlier in the year when we were studying Ephesians, I told you about the dividing wall in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the temple court proper, which only Jews could enter. And at regular intervals along that along that wall, if you will, the temple authorities had set up uh, these signs engraved in stone, engraved in limestone, which warned Gentiles that the penalty for crossing into the uh, court of the temple proper was death. And the word that they used on those markers for Gentiles, foreigners, it's the same word Jesus uses here of this Samaritan man. He was a foreigner to the covenants of God. He was not a part of God's chosen people, and yet he was the one amongst the ten who had the sense to return and give thanks to Israel's God. And you see this kind of reversal happening over and over and over again in the gospel accounts. Jesus highlights people that pious Jews would have found surprising as the ones who were practicing faith and repentance and believing in Jesus. Um, the Gospels highlight Samaritans and Romans. And if you remember uh, the Canaanite woman, the woman descended from Canaanites who was living in Tyre and Sidon. And we need to say this about that phenomenon. From the beginning God's, of, co- of God's covenant with Abraham, it was always God's intention to bless the Gentiles through His chosen people and to save Gentiles. Uh, but Jesus blessing the faith of this Samaritan man or the Roman centurion, uh, it makes more than a point about the kind of faith that pleases God. It also makes a point about the spiritual condition of Israel in the, genera- in the generation that Jesus ministered to. Why does Jesus have to heal a Samaritan to receive a thank you? Why does He have to cross paths with a Roman centurion of all people to find a man of great faith in Israel. Uh, it shows uh, just the, the, the problem that Israel had 
in the generation he ministered to. And I believe it's not just a picture of that generation. It also, if you treat this like a parable, it gives us a picture of just human thankfulness. Uh, human beings, it's just typical of fallen human nature that we don't return thanks to God in terms of the thanks He deserves. And even as Christians, right, you think about this, it's easy to see a parable here on prayer, you know, where I ask the Lord for ten things in prayer, He says yes to a lot of them, and I only return thanks for one of the ten, right? That's just part of something we struggle with even as Christians, and we need to make the point, it saddens the heart of Jesus when people fail to give thanks to God for His goodness. That leads then to the final act of the drama, which is all about saving faith. Look again at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Now, in this passage, there are three words used to describe the healing of this Samaritan man. Uh, In verse 14, Luke uses the word cleansed. In verse 15, Luke uses the word healed. In verse 19, he says, your faith has made you well. In my edition of the New American Standard Translation, which is what I'm I'm preaching to you from, I have a little footnote over the phrase, has made you well. And if I look in the marginal notes in my Bible, uh, where that footnote, to the corresponding marginal note to that footnote, uh, it says in my marginal notes that you could also translate has made you well as has saved you. It is true that the word Jesus uses here can be used for a physical healing. That's, that's absolutely true. Our translators are, are translating it faithfully. But more often in the New Testament, this is also the word for salvation. Uh, in fact, this is the normal word that the New Testament most regularly uses to speak of spiritual salvation and being reconciled to God. A good example is found in Luke chapter 7 that's undeniable. It's crystal clear. Uh, there Jesus says to a woman, your sins have been forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And Jesus is using that same word here for the Samaritan man. So, I believe this is what's happening in the final verse. Jesus is rendering a spiritual verdict. This man, though a Samaritan, is a true child of Abraham by faith. He's been saved from his sins and reconciled to God. The man wanted more than just a physical healing. By his actions and words, he's acknowledging Jesus as Savior and Lord and worthy of the worship and thanks that only belongs to God. And there we need to stop and just make sure that we rehearse the goodness of the gospel uh, in this moment. The fact is, all of us suffer from a kind of leprosy of the soul. We compulsively rebel against the one who made us and loves us and has given us every good gift. If our disease of the soul goes unremedied, it will destroy us in the end. But God has provided a remedy for us through Christ Jesus died the death we deserved so that our rebellion and our breaking of God's law could be forgiven and pardoned. And all those who come to Jesus in faith, confessing their rebellion for what it is and being willing to turn from it, uh, they receive not only pardon, their souls are made well, they're healed. The Apostle John says it this way, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, this account from the life of our Lord Jesus, it shows us the goodness of Jesus in healing these men. It gives us a portrait of what true, worshipful, heartfelt thanks looks like in the form of the Samaritan man. 
Uh, it is a cautionary tale about the widespread reality of ingratitude towards God, and it's also a picture of what saving faith looks like. At the beginning of the message, I said I was going to preach the passage as a parable. So, if we're going to treat the passage as a parable, what's the lesson? Like, uh, the whole point of a parable is that it has a lesson. So, what are the lessons it teaches? Well, I think there's two lessons that I want to highlight this morning. First of all, it is a mark of human nature to be ungrateful for the good gifts God gives us. James tells us that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But how does fallen human nature respond to those good gifts God has given? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that though in their hearts all people know God, they do not honor Him as God or give thanks. At the core of human rebellion is an unwillingness to give thanks to God for who He is and who He's revealed Himself to be and all the good He's given us. And uh, I think that's important to note because this week, all across America, uh, people are going to get together with family and friends, and they may even rehearse out loud things that they're thankful… they might even share at the dinner table things they're thankful for. But even as we acknowledge that, we need to say this, there's a huge difference between saying, I'm thankful for you know, this person in my life. There's a difference between that and saying, I thank God for His loving kindness towards me. There's a difference between saying, I'm thankful for the way that this has worked out and saying, I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus has met me in the middle of my need with His grace. Those are two different ways of giving thanks. Those are two different things. And the unredeemed heart doesn't give thanks to God. In that sense, I think the other nine lepers are a perfect picture of what the unredeemed heart looks like. But second, uh, we, we've been saved from that, and so the second lesson uh, that we can learn here is that in contrast to the thanklessness of the unsaved heart, the redeemed heart is filled with thankfulness towards God. Uh, if you're a true follower of Jesus, then the Samaritan leper is a picture of the worship and thanks and gratitude that's in your heart to God. Uh, your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord has saved you, and now you have worship and praise and gratitude towards Him. And as you give thanks this Thanksgiving, I want to encourage you to do three things this week. Here's our nuts and bolts application. Here are three things I want to suggest for this week for you. First of all, find some time before Thanksgiving Day, okay? Set aside time, maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, to spend a half hour communing alone with God, just offering Him praise and thanksgiving. No requests, just returning thanks. If you're not in the habit of praying regularly, the half hour could sound like a long time, but I think once you get going, you'll find there's a whole lot of things you have to be thankful for. And I, I choose a half hour just because uh, it feels to me like trying to fit it into 15 minutes. It's like I've just finally got going. I finally got warmed up. So, set aside a half hour and try to spend some time just returning thanks to God. Second, find an appropriate way to express your thanks to God for His physical blessings with the people you spend Thanksgiving with. Paul describes the goodness of God in giving uh, all people physical blessings this way. In generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet He did not leave Himself without a witness, in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is good, and He gives all people, Christian and non-Christian, good physical gifts 
uh, to be thankful for. And then third, try to find a way to appropriately express thanks to God for the spiritual blessings that He's given you. An excellent framework for that might be the way that Paul uh, describes the spiritual blessings we receive through Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Speaking of God the Father, Paul says, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, For illustrative purposes, allow me to uh, apply that to myself for a moment. My rebellion and sin reduced me not just to doing uh, things that were wicked and evil in God's sight according to His law, my sin reduced me to being a fool. But through Jesus, I'm saved from, the, uh, from my foolishness of living a futile, self-centered, self-defeating life for petty purposes that weren't going to deliver me in the end. Uh, through Christ, I've been saved from that foolishness and given the wisdom of God. I'm assured by the apostles and what they've written that I have righteousness through Christ because of my faith in Him. I'm assured that the Holy Spirit is working in me to sanctify me and set me apart for holiness. I have been redeemed from the penalty of my slavery to sins through Christ. So, for me, Christ has become wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and my redemption. He's cleansed the leprous rebellion in my own heart and taken away my guilt by His sacrificial death. Uh, God the Father has adopted me into His family, and I now have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for me. As I reflect back on my own life story to this point, the theme of the story is the grace of Christ meeting me in the middle of my need. I have a lot to be thankful for, and I think that you do as well. Um, So, as you think about Thanksgiving, try to set aside some time just to get your own heart right by returning thanks to God in prayer, and then actually strategizing before you're there in the moment at the dinner table about the physical blessings and spiritual blessings of God that you want to publicly, in front of of the other people who are there, give Him thanks for. I believe what we've looked at this morning in Luke 17, it can be a parable. Uh, It was a historical event, but I think it's a parable of thankful faith. And as we look forward to the Thanksgiving holiday… I just want to encourage you to strategize about how you're going to return thanks to God for His good gifts. Let's pray.